But look, True Crime Tuesday continues. Yes. We've spoken about the Netflix doco, which started on the ABC. It's absolutely blown up. Caro Meldrum Hanna, who was a major part of the Ghost Train story, joins a run home with Joel and Fletch. Caro, good afternoon to you. Hey, guys. How are you? Well, oh, we're going okay. We're about to lose the marquee here. Um, but uh, just a big wind blew <laughs> there. Right? But uh, look, i tell you what, it's blown up a little bit like the, well, i tell you what, the hype around the docu-series, which is a very, very sad story, which is told so well via the ABC and Netflix. Um, can you tell us how you first got involved in it? Yes. Look, it was actually through my the producer I made it with who had a good friend who knew Martin Sharp, the uh, late Australian artist, and who was encouraging us, look, if you're going to do another exposed series, you've really got to have a look at the fire at Luna Park in 1979. It's this dreadful event. It's unresolved. The police quickly put it down to an electrical fault within a handful of hours, but there were all these other witnesses there who were saying different things. And the families feel, several of them, there was a a great injustice. So we had a bit of a scratch around and it actually began by trawling through Martin Sharp's materials. He kept all these sorts of cassette recordings, tape recordings. He recorded his conversations with people on the phone or when they came to visit him at his home. He had these amazing contacts and connections, probably because of his stature as as such a well-known artist. And he, he, he gathered all of this material and... That was a big launching pad for us. That the, the, the massively hard task was actually tracking down all these witnesses and people that were at Luna Park in June of 1979, four decades later, and, and getting them to talk about what they saw, what they heard, and what they remembered, and whether they were called to the inquest. So that, so that was huge because, you know, people marry, they change their names, they move. Um, and also asking the families to to sit down and, and go through it again with us, many of whom, like Jenny Godson, I mean, she's just unforgettable and totally heartbreaking. The mum mm. who lost her husband and her two little boys, just she watched them die in front of her. Um, you know, getting their approval and their permission not only to tell the story but to sit down and, and go back through those incredibly dark days. Um, it, it was a really big journey, and I've got to be honest, it, it, it has left quite an, an imprint on me, this one. Um, for all of us who made it, yeah. Yeah. Cara, did you know before you actually started getting, like, investigating into it, had you heard of, um, I suppose, the cover-up? Because it was not common knowledge, but there was always rumours. Yeah, that's right. Well, look, the fire occurred before I was even born, guys. So I really hadn't heard much about it at all when it was suggested to me and the team that we should look at it. So I came to it very cold. And I would just, you know, ask people in my life, my parents or my family, hey, what do you remember of this? This dreadful fire in Luna Park, seven people died. And they said, oh, yeah, everyone, I asked. Oh, yeah, that, I'm sure that was an electrical fault. That's right. That's, that, that's what it was. It was an electrical fault. So that theory really stuck that the police had put out. It really stuck with people. And... It, it, it diverted people's attention away from what other possibilities could exist. But it didn't take us long to realise, whoa, there were these witnesses who saw bikies there that night. There were witnesses who smelt kerosene or some sort of an accelerant inside the ride um, when the, little, the fire had just started. 
um, and later when they were running in trying to rescue people. Um, and, and then it just gathered momentum. And it, then even after the show, we broadcast the show, more witnesses came forward that the police had never spoken to um, that said they also saw bikies there that night and smelt some sort of accelerant. So, look, to answer your question in a short way, I've just done it in a long way. No, I really didn't know about, the, about what seems to be a cover-up. That's the allegation. Caro, there was a pretty um, telling statement. I'm only early into the series, and it's got me. I just haven't had time to properly get into it properly. But where I think it was Jason who says to you that we've had all this information, or maybe it was vice versa the other way around, but we haven't been able to achieve anything. What makes us think we can change something from there? Do you recall that part of it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was That's right at the beginning, actually. You haven't got very far. No, <laughs> no, no, I'm early, very it, early. It was early on. Yeah, it was early on he did say that. Because Jason, well, Jason went there to Luna Park that night with his four best mates. They're all 12, 13 from Waverley College in Sydney's eastern suburbs. And it was their first night out without their parents. You know, you can imagine, you, you'd remember how momentous that was when you were a kid and you got your first night out without your parents around. You're being trusted to go out and have fun. And he went there with his four best mates and he was the only one to come home alive. Wow. And he watched them go up in flames inside that ride. So incredibly traumatising. He was 12. And he went on to have a long career, Jason, in television. Um, I think it was at Channel 7 for years. And he tried himself to try and make some sort of a film or a documentary, but it would overwhelm him the emotion and the intensity and, you know, a bit of survivor's guilt, I guess, too. It was too much for him. So in that first early meeting with him, you know, he was musing, I've tried to do this. I, I haven't got very far. Maybe you guys can um, because you're not so closely connected to it. Um, and we didn't know where we'd get, you know. I, we didn't know if we'd be able to find these witnesses. And, and so many of them, they told us things that we never expected them to tell us, never expected them to say. So it was it was extremely eye-opening for us as well. Caro, was there a, just on that, was there an interview that you had or maybe there was a stage of all of this where you thought, oh, I don't know if this is really going anywhere and then all of a sudden one particular interview that you have just makes you go, okay, this we're onto something here. Look, I'm going to be totally honest, I knew we were onto something very early on, mm. but there was one interview that opened a really big door for us because we were tearing our hair out about how, because this would never happen in, the, in this day, day and age, right? This happened that the police get up within a handful of hours after the, the fire's just been bloody put out. It's just been extinguished. Mm. And the police get up and tell the world, it's an electrical fault, we know what it is, case closed, nothing else to see here. That just, that would be so grossly inappropriate now, but then it was too. It was far too quick. How, how could they come to that determination so quickly without speaking, even speaking and interviewing to people who were there that night? It just, it didn't add up. But we were tearing our hair out about who was this detective that did that, that stood in front of the camera, who was named in the media as leading the investigation and said this, just closed it all down so quickly. And his name was Doug Knight. And he, he died before by the time we started making this program so that was incredibly frustrating we were never going to be able to talk to him but who on earth was he mm. and it was very difficult to find information out about him but it was when we sat down with the sergeant that was assisting the coroner for the first and only inquest that was very hastily convened his name's Colin Wedderburn 
And I asked him, you know, who is this bloke? Because no one else would tell me about Doug Knight. Everyone got very uncomfortable when I'd ask them about him. And it was Colin Wedderburn who took a deep breath and he told me, well, he was a fixer. And a fixer was someone who would move evidence, hide evidence, delete evidence, um, who was corrupt, a corrupt police officer. And that was when the door really opened for us. We thought, okay, something something mm. really very off looks like it has occurred here. And if we have a sergeant, a member of the police force, who's telling us this on camera, and then it was backed up by several others who supported that information, then is this, is this part of the answer? So, Caro, it, I mean, I'm three episodes in. It, it is quite damning, all that evidence. What happens now? Can the police open a new investigation or an inquest in, into this now? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. And I'm getting receiving messages from people all over the world, from America and England, um, asking what's going on two years mm. later. Is there a new inquest? Because all these police, all these people are calling for one, um, and one hasn't been established yet. The New South Wales coroner hasn't announced whether there will be a new one, but she did order the police to review all of the evidence. Um, after someone with legal standing, who I can't name, wrote to her, the coroner, and asked for a new inquest to be called. So the police were then sent off to conduct a review of their evidence and report back, I believe. There was a strike force um, set up, and it's, it's now with the coroner to, to, to announce whether there will be a, a new inquest or not. And a second, look, a second inquest or even a third inquest would, would not be controversial. There are many, many historical matters that are resolved where a second or third inquest has been called. Um, you know, the fact that we have a multi-fatality event, seven people who died, that's so unresolved, and all these witnesses that weren't called or who were omitted and weren't included in that first inquest, the National Crime Authority said that first inquest was, was unsatisfactory, it was inadequate, they called the police investigation grossly inadequate. I mean, it really is screaming for another inquiry. And, you know, I, I spoke to Jenny Gobson only just this morning. We're in touch and we, we still speak. Mm. And, and, and she wants to know. She's saying, I haven't heard anything. I, is there, I want a new inquest. I, she wasn't even there for the first inquest. You know, she, she, she was a witness and lost a whole family. and She wasn't even at that first inquest, which is damning mm. in itself. Mm. Yeah. Hey, yeah, imagine Cara, being what, that voiceless. Oh. So, Caro, what were they... My, I was just trying to work out, was was it going to be up for tender, Lunar Park itself, or was the land going to be sold? Like, what Why? What, what was the agenda behind it if, mm. if they actually closed Lunar Park? Yeah, so I think you're there in episode three there, the final episode. That's when it takes a turn and actually has a look at what happened after the fire. We have these fatalities. What actually happened to Luna Park after the fire? And there was this, obviously, this theory that has remained unresolved that it wasn't an electrical fault. There were, there were signs that it was arson and that the fire may have been deliberately lit in order to evict the businessmen who were running the park then because a notorious organised criminal wanted Luna Park for himself, and that was Abe Saffron. And Abe Saffron, who is, you know, very notorious here in New South Wales particularly, but probably all over Australia, people would know that name. 
and the, there was information that he wanted Lunar Park for himself. He tried to acquire it but hadn't. And arson was a tool of his. It was in his tool belt. There had been an inquest into these suspicious fires around Sydney that were linked back to him uh, or businesses he was attached to. And was this another one of, of, of an arson connected to Ab Saffron? And, di and did he do this? And, and he, he got these bikies to light this fire um, and it went dreadfully wrong. People died. They did, people, children weren't meant to die. So that was the theory because what happened after the fire was that, of course, the, the people who, the businessmen who were running it lost the park and the tender was awarded by the government through, through quite a peculiar process, a very peculiar tender process when, you, when we investigated it. It was eventually awarded, um, not to the company that <laughs> was publicised as having won it, there was a third round and all of a sudden it was awarded to a surprise new company um, and that Abe Saffron's relatives were involved in that company. So it's a really peculiar, you know, a classic Sydney property development um, saga there that we explored as well. Um, that's very murky and very uncomfortable. Caro, can I ask now, because I reckon a lot of people will be thinking about it, like it is prized land with some of the greatest views in the world. Mm. Who, who owns that land as of right now? I couldn't tell you what, what, what um, organisation or company is, is running Lunar Park. It's a very different place to what it was then. I mean, back then after the fire, the company that won the tender, they stripped Lunar Park. They, they bulldozed it. They, they mm. raised it to the ground. So what actually was Lunar Park, barely any of it exists. Basically, the, 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 the smiling face in Coney Island, I think. Um, and that damage, that terrible damage was done back then in the 80s by the company that won the tender after the fire. Um, but, um, you know, now I, I think it's still crown land for sure and it's still mm. leased, yeah. So, but Cara, certainly, not, uh, certainly not owned by the company, you know, have anything to do with the company that won yeah. it back then in the 80s, yeah. So, Carrie, you, you mentioned Abe Saffron and he was, a, a, as you mentioned, a violent criminal and I'm sure he's still got relatives who, who were alive and there's some bad people around. Did you have any, any threats against you when, when you first made this documentary? No, no, no. I, I, I didn't receive receive any threats of, of that such. No. Um, look, Martin Sharp, back in the day when he was looking at it, he he said he received threats that people turned up on his doorstep um, and were urging him away from this um, in, in, in means and communication, not to be confused for anything else. But no, I, I, I didn't receive any threats. Um, I think that all those witnesses... It, there's, there's too much there for, for that to happen now. Um, and and this, this really does boil down to the loss of those, those seven people, those, those yeah. six little kids mm. and, that, and that father and, and the remaining family, families who have endured more than what most people could ever imagine, trying yeah. to know, fight for it, their children. And yeah. I know it's, there's nothing really that can replace, you know, family members who pass away, but was there any compensation mm. given... To the families, by by, by anyone. Oh look, there may have been some some civil matter very long ago. I mean, it, it sort of pales into insignificance. Yeah. Uh, what has never been done is you, you know no amount of money would ever bring it back. If there was money, it would have been a very small amount. But what um, what's really obvious now is that there are two things that still haven't been done, that really do need to be done. Number one, an acknowledgement and an apology for the, to those families for the way this was handled back then, that police investigation 
was really grossly inadequate. And I agree with the National Crime Authority there, and many do. You know, there were things overlooked, and it just was not good enough. And there should be an apology to those families um, for what, what they had to endure. And there really does need to be, you know, the, 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 these families want it, but Jenny particularly, there needs to be another inquiry to hear from the witnesses that weren't included back then, to hear their stories. You know, they want it too, these witnesses that were there that night and not included. You know, the kids who saw the bikies but were written off and not called at the, to the inquest. They want to be heard. So does the bloke who smelt kerosene and others who did as well. They, they want to get in court and have the families hear this, hear the other side. Not just it was an electrical fault. Well, Karen, um, you know what? And it's time the, for that. It's never too late yeah. for it either. No, well, you know what I was about to say is that uh, the very first podcast that went, went was a major hit was a podcast mm. called Serial. And yeah. that you saw what happened with that. They, they reopened a case many, many years later based on the support from the community, just pushing it forward. And, uh, and that's what happened. So that got reopened. So you never do know what can happen with the work of, you know, yourselves and, and others and Martin before you um, and Jason, of course. So you, you never do know what mm. could happen. What about yourself as far as now having, you know, it, it's been, and I say this, you know, with great respect as far as the series itself, uh, obviously not the incident, but the series itself has been a major success and globally gone bananas. Do you have a, a mm. hunger now to try and chase other sorts of uh, former crimes potentially? Oh, oh yeah, but... I, Bottomless appetite, insatiable, absolutely, for sure, yeah. I've taken, you know, some time out, but um, it's now on to exploring and looking at what's next. There are so many stories out that are there to be told, and I think the reaction to this program and just how many people are watching it around the world, you know, it it hit the top ten, not only in Australia, it was was number three in Australia, but on Netflix, number four in the US and number five in the UK. I mean, it's massive. So it it shows the demand for these sort of stories and... It doesn't matter if they are old or historical stories. Um, people care. People really care out there, and they'll invest in watching something like this and, and get involved. So, yeah, for me, it's looking forward to the next to the next thing. Cara, would it just be domestically, or would you be willing to take on like an international story? Oh, yeah, both, all, both, everything. Yeah. Never say no. L- look at everything. <laughs> you you, you got any quite... hot leads, boys? No, no, we'll we'll take it offline. Uh, how how long how long from go how long from go to woe, Caro? Did did it did it take before you um aired the first episode? How how much background work did you have to do? Well, the background work was massive. I think from go to woe it was it was a good year, but we got oh, and man. we got delayed pretty badly by COVID. We were making this in the during the COVID you know the big COVID lockdowns when they when they first came in. So in 2020. So we got very delayed by that because we couldn't travel and we couldn't get to people to interview them. And you're not going to do a, a bloody Skype interview or a Zoom interview on content like this. No. You know, it, it's far too serious. So, you know, we did it the right way. But, yeah, it was, it, was a good, it was a good year, I'd say, from go to woe. And just before you go, we're going to wrap the show up. We're nearly done. But just interested to see how, how does it le- land in the hands of Netflix? You know, how does that sort of go down? Or was that dealt with by another team? Oh, dealt with by another team. A lot of ABC programs that will first appear on the ABC or their co-productions or whatever it may be for the public broadcaster um, will end up being sold to to broadcasters 
you know, linear ones around the world, but also to streaming platforms as well. So you'll see other, a lot of other ABC programs that pop up on, whether it be Amazon Prime or Netflix or mm. I think even Stan too, yeah. So well, it's been Caro, great to see this one on Netflix, yeah. Caro, Mildrum, Hannah, unbelievable story. I mean, it's called Exposed, the Ghost Train Fire on Netflix. It's a three-part documentary series. Uh, you play a major, major hand in that. We appreciate you joining the Run Home with Joel and Fletch. Oh, thanks so much for having me, guys. There thanks, is Caro. Great, great story. Yeah, Dean, if you missed uh, Dean Edzer and also Toby Dow earlier, it's worth yeah. sort of searching back well, Yeah, it leads well into it. So,